and welcome to another episode of Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people that organized them. I'm Amy Murray, and yes, you might be wondering why you're hearing a different voice on the host side of the microphone. Well, it's because today... I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Christian Napier, the man who started this conversation almost a year ago when he created this podcast. Christian, I really appreciate that you're taking time to sit in the hot seat and answer some burning questions. And it really is my honor to be here having you share this story with us. Amy, thank you very much. It is a hot seat. I can feel the temperature rising already. I appreciate that very, very warm welcome. And I'm so grateful to you and to everybody else who's participated on this podcast. It's been a real joy over the last year to engage with so many people and make so many connections. And I'm just really, really honored to have you interview me for this 100th episode. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Well, let's kind of start with that question that everybody wants to know. What was the light bulb moment for you where you thought, this is something that I want to try on and make happen. Well, that's an interesting story. I'll try not to make it too long and boring. Basically, I work for the, as part of my consulting, one of the clients, my benchmark client, if you will, is the International Olympic Committee. One of the projects that I do for the IOC is conduct structured interviews, which are interviews with the heads of all the functional areas in an organizing committee throughout its life. And as I was conducting these interviews over the last few years, I'm hearing all these stories that these IOCFA heads are telling me. And I keep thinking to myself, I'd really like to tell the story of Salt Lake 2002, but I never really had an opportunity to do that. And I wasn't really sure how to do it. Well, as you know, COVID hits, we're all sitting around (laughs) as our event industry is on fire. And I had a little bit of time and I had this idea, why not use a podcast? as a vehicle to collect these stories. And so I just tried it. I interviewed five people, starting with Darren Hughes. And then early in April of 2020, I released those episodes. And one year later, here we are. Well, it's perfect. And like you said, with COVID, I think it was a very welcome distraction from what was going on in the world, especially since so many of us are in some way, shape, or form, still attached to the event world and business and how it disintegrated for many people and evolved for others. So let's let's kind of get into this and um, start at the top. Before uh, we dive into Salt Lake 2002, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're joining us from today and what you're currently up to? Well, I'm joining you from the worldwide headquarters of GP4, which is my home office, and <laughs> and here in Sandy, Utah, so not far from the offices of the Salt Lake 2002 Organizing Committee. And like so many other people, I'm working from home. I'm here with my wife. Uh, next week is our 31-year anniversary. We have four children. One is still living at home. The rest are all out making their way into the world. And life is pretty good, all things considered, with all the craziness of COVID and the challenges of the industry. I have to say, I feel very, very blessed. 
I love hearing that you feel that way. And we, we can take so much from what happened this last year, but I love that you're looking at the positive and, and pulling from that. So being that you're in Utah and you're a native to Utah, it must have been really interesting for you to have the world coming to you. So t- let's walk down that path a bit. Before the games, where were you or what were you doing in your career? What was paying your bills? Okay, well, paying the bills, I worked as a, well, as a technology consultant, a professional in the 90s, as we recall back in those times, there was a lot of concern about Y2K. And so a lot of companies were upgrading their systems and their platforms. So in the 90s, I was a road warrior. I worked for IBM and I was running around to clients helping them implement new systems to replace their old ones so that they would be night they would be y2k compliant and uh by the end of the 90s i had three small children and my wife was tired of me traveling and frankly i was tired of traveling i've been the road warrior for 5 years flying out every week and coming home on the weekends And I felt like I needed to do something a little bit different. So what did I do? I started looking for jobs. And at the time, I don't know if you remember, Amy, but uh, the big job platform online at that time was monster.com. And monster.com happened to be a sponsor of the games. And so the Salt Lake Organizing Committee was posting jobs on monster.com. And I went on there and I found a job and I applied for it. And uh, Darren Hughes and Mark Young called me in to do interviews. And somehow I was fortunate enough to be hired. So yeah, thank you, monster.com. Yeah, still plugging the sponsors yet today. Like that, that sponsorship paid off. (laughs) Absolutely. So, So you found yourself on the 11th floor. And I'm curious to know, like coming from that world of technology going into the games, like a lot was changing when it came to the Olympics and how we delivered them and how we communicated. What kind of challenges did you encounter in your, in your role, in your position that you might not have before? And how did you handle them? Well, it's interesting. When I came in, I came in working in technology, as you mentioned, sitting on the 11th floor. My client was the HR team because the systems that I oversaw were the systems for workforce. And the challenge we faced at that time was the decision had been recently made before I came on board to not use the SEMA applications, the applications that were implemented in Sydney that uh, are integrated into the SEMA suite of applications, what was known at that time as the games management systems. Frazier gave us a very limited budget to procure off-the-shelf solutions. Thank you, Frazier. Yeah, to, to deliver the workforce. So recruit, select, train, schedule, uniform, and manage the deployment of all of the volunteers paid and paid staff primarily. And so we had a very limited budget. We had to be creative. Uh, we were able to procure some systems at uh, significantly reduced rates because we had nonprofit status as the organizing committee. Also, people wanted to be involved. And that was also a bit of a challenge because they also wanted some rights for their involvement. But we could not grant rights given the values that were 
provided. And then the third thing that we did is we leveraged our sponsorship with monster.com to help develop the training administration system that we use to manage all of the training of the volunteers prior to the games. And so it was a combination of being creative with off the self providers and leveraging our sponsorship. And we were able to deliver all of the systems that we needed on time and within the very small budget that Frazier allotted us. Budget becomes such a big part of our conversation, I think. And I'm, I'm curious in your role, it's, it's hard costs. Like you're talking about software. It costs what it costs and working with partners. So was there VIK available or what, how did you solve that? Yeah, that's exactly right. As I was just saying with monster.com, we have, we ended up using VIK that was available through that sponsorship to, to use a training system that they had recently acquired from a company in Australia. They had actually acquired this small company and we actually were able to use the system that they had acquired uh, through VIK. If we, if we did not have the VIK, we probably would not have had the budget to do any kind of online enrollment of training that we did in Salt Lake. And if you recall in the late nineties, early two thousands, that's when things were just starting to transition online. And so we had this hybrid of paper and electronic, which was sometimes difficult to navigate because we were sending out a lot of letters, hard copy letters to volunteers. And also at the same time, we were encouraging people to sign up and enroll online. And so it was a bit of a burden, I think, on the volunteer call center to try to manage these processes simultaneously, a paper-based approach as well as an online-based approach. But overall, you know, did it work perfectly? No, uh, it was it was not perfect, but it, it ended up doing the job that we needed to do at the end of the day. Do you recall the number of people and volunteers that we had as part of the games? Uh the numbers are a bit fuzzy. I think we had around 20,000 volunteers for the Olympic Games and another 6,000 volunteers for the Paralympic Games. So it's about 25, 26,000 volunteers in total. Some of those worked both games. There were some that just worked one or the other. Uh, the workforce, Darren Hughes, I know he's got all the numbers, so I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get them wrong. But, you know, I think we had about a, a 2,000 uh, full-time paid staff at Games Time plus another seven or 8,000 what we called uh, Games Time employment. So people that were hired on a short-term temporary basis to work the games. I cannot remember the number of the contractors, though. I'll have to go to Darren on that one. And I'm sure he'll be talking to me and say, Christian, you got the numbers all wrong, you know, and I'll have to post some kind of an update in the <laughs> where we post it on Facebook and you know, say, oh, here are the actual numbers from Darren. That's a lot of stamps. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> let's we've we've talked about the challenges, but let's open up the door to some of the great experiences you had, some of the recollections and memories that you want to share with us that we wouldn't know because we weren't on the eleventh floor. Yeah, well, I have to say one thing about the 11th floor. I was only there for a short period of time. I ended up moving to the 13th floor with the HR people because I wanted to be close to the client. They were my client and I wanted to make sure that I was serving them properly. So I actually picked up and moved my 
spot from the 11th floor and sat on the 13th floor next to Darren Hughes and Jamie Shaw and Lisa King and Darcy Holder and Steve Clark was next to me. And so Christian LaBarbera, we were all kind of there. I'm, I've left out a bunch of names and I apologize people for leaving out names. Mary Dye sat next, next to me at one point in time. And uh, it was a lot of fun sitting there on the 13th floor. The HR people were fun people. I don't need a really quiet office space. It always seemed like there was some kind of conversation going on, which suited me quite well. I don't like feeling like I'm working in the library. Mornings, we would always come in and the dominant topic of conversation was, what are we going to have for lunch? <laughs> and it seemed like it took us a couple of hours every day to figure out what lunch was going to be and where you know, who was going to go and where we were going to go for lunch. And I remember that quite fondly. It was a lot of fun just thinking about what are we going to have for lunch? Today? Well, we could go to PF Change. Well, we went there Monday. All right, well, let's, uh, let's think about going over to the Globe. Okay, or Gandalfos or wherever. Uh, I really liked uh, that banter that we had just talking about lunch. So that was a, that was a very fun, fond memory for me because I love food and, and I really enjoyed the lunch conversations. Um, other great things, <laughs> this may not be a great thing. I wore the most hideous outfits because back in the mid to late nineties, it was all friends attire. And so I was wearing these dockers, you know, we always, we had these khaki pants that I was I, with pleats and cuffs, you know, just so horrible. I don't know if you remember the writer, Dave Barry, Dave Barry was a humor writer, wrote for the Miami Herald for many, many years. And he was one of my favorite writers uh, when I was you know, at that time in the, in the nineties and he called dockers pants for the bigger butted man. <laughs> uh, it, it's absolutely true. Uh, I was a bigger butted man and I was wearing these dockers and they looked terrible. And I would often wear a t-shirt with a sweater vest. I was so Chandler from friends. I mean, what was I thinking? I don't know. Yeah. Steve Clark was a very, very well-dressed individual and I always admired him, but he had the he had the physique to pull it off. I didn't really have the physique, so I was always wearing frumpy clothes. Um, I I had hilarious conversations with Christian LaBarbera. He was so funny. We laughed hysterically. We had a running gag between each other where uh, we would do Captain Picard voices and call each other number one. Uh, Nobody else is going to understand that, but Christian, uh, it was just a huge amount of fun. The, the HR team under Ed, they, they really had a lot of fun activities. Uh, there was a Prince concert we went to, uh, after the games were over, there was some money left over in the budget and we all went to Phoenix <laughs> to a comedy club, uh, it, yeah, we just had a great time. I, and I'm, I'm totally, totally just wandering and rambling and not making any, any sense here, but it was just a great amount of fun. Uh, Darren and I, and I've told this on the podcast, you know, we looked at each other when the games were over and asked ourselves, is this the pinnacle? Is this it? Is this the best job we'll ever have? And in many respects, for me, it was. Well, I love that you kind of got lost in the memory of it, because I think so many of us do and we reminisce and, and think back to that time. And I'm curious to know, as a local, as a 
local Utah guy, did you feel any pressure when it came to welcoming in so many people that were from around the country and around the world? You know, it's interesting. I've thought about this. It almost seemed like in some respects, we were in separate camps. I don't mean that in a bad way, but there were people here like myself who were living in Utah and working in Utah. This was a job. We had families and our family time was time with our wives and children, our spouses and children. And there were a lot of people who came from out of town or were single Utahns and the people in the committee really became their family. And they did all kinds of things after hours. You and so many other people have, have shared so many awesome stories about the, the things that you did with the friends that you made here in Salt Lake. For me, it wasn't quite like that. It was really, really friendly and collegial and warm in the office, but I wasn't doing too much outside of the office. I was, I was kind of like, okay, I do my job here at the office. And when I'm done, I'm going to go home. And then I, you know, it's helping clean up the kitchen and do dishes and, and that kind of stuff. And, and honestly, I was happy for that because I missed a lot of that in the nineties because I was traveling so much. And so I really saw working at Salt Lake as an opportunity to be around my family more. And so I wasn't as close with the quote unquote expats as I probably should have been. And I, and I realized looking back that I, I missed out on a lot of awesome things that people were doing with softball leagues and, and all kinds of fun things. And, but you know, it is what it is that you make decisions and, and you, you move on, but it was really, really, it was really, really interesting to observe that as, as a local. I didn't really, I didn't really actively try super hard to welcome people. And I wish that I would have been more actively involved in doing that back then. Well, I think your podcast is doing a great job of letting us see more of the um, cable network of Salt Lake Winter Olympic Games. It shows us the different channels that we might not have been paying attention to or even knew to turn on when we were there. So again, I think your audience, the family that's listening, thanks you for that because we're all sort of figuring out these other things that were happening around at the time. And, and that's pretty exciting. All right. So, Oh, so sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say the cable network analogy is kind of interesting. I was hoping the podcast would not become like Dateline NBC and, you know, where are all the bodies buried <laughs> kind of a thing. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. And, and I do, again, just appreciate everybody making their contribution and sharing their stories. And I hope that we'll continue it and and see that more holistic view of the organizing committee like you're talking about, because as, as you were rightly, very, very rightly pointed out, we often see it through a very narrow lens of what our role and responsibility is and, and don't get to see the big picture. Well, you kind of tapped into something and this is one of the questions that I've been asked to ask you is what secrets or stories have you learned doing this podcast that didn't make the cut ended up on the, on the floor, if you will. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. 
there have been there have been occasions where after we've finished recording, someone has told a story, which is really, really interesting. And when that happens, I often will ask, well, do you want to record that? And sometimes they say yes, and sometimes they say no. So to protect the integrity of the individuals, um, I'm not going to divulge anything that we did not record. As far as what was recorded and cut, I, as a principal, try to keep pretty much everything that someone has said. So if we do make any edits in the podcast, usually I'm editing myself. If I drone on a little bit too long and I'm kind of detracting from what the person, the guest is saying, I might cut out a little bit of what I am saying. Also, I can bumble a little bit on my speech and I say, um, too many times and those kind of things. And if it's really, really horrible, I might cut a little bit here and there. I would say there are only a few times where I've actually cut something where a guest has said something. And most of that time is because the guest has then later written me and said, you know what? I actually shouldn't have told this particular story. Will you please take it out? And then I will, you know, I'll go ahead and take it out. So I don't have anything really salacious to say, to say right now. Um, I do though, generally speaking, keep everything that the guest has said. That's pretty impressive. Especially when I know how some of your guests and I'm talking about myself drone on using your phraseology. So I appreciate that. Um, I am curious to know, this is the 100th episode. So about a hundred hours, but a hundred hours, how much time does that actually take? Because you have to go back and forth on email to find a date that works and then prep people what, how many hours does one episode really take? Uh, it takes about three to four hours. If you add all the time that you are you know, coordinating with the person and then you actually have the time of the conversation, then it takes time to edit the audio. And, and I find that I end up spending about one and a half to two times the actual length of the recording or the length of the interview to do the edits. And, and that's because with podcasts, you want the audio to sound good. If it doesn't sound good, then people don't want to listen. And then after the audio is edited, then I need to get it online. And to get it online, I need to uh, I need to write a little summary of it. And then one of the things that I started doing very early on was putting some timestamps in the show notes so that people could look and see when certain stories are being told. And and then also, you know the the audio is a little bit more complicated than a lot of podcasts because I have a lot of musical stingers to kind of break up the conversation, which I think makes it a little bit more listenable, but it takes more time to go in and put those stingers in. And then once all that's done, uh, I, I ask people for headshots and I create the little page on my website and then I make some posts on LinkedIn and Facebook. So yeah, if you add all that time together, it's about three to four hours for each episode. That's quite a bit of dedication and commitment. And again, like from everybody that's been a part of this or just those that listen and enjoy it, we really love that you have given so much of your time to us that get this gift. So thank you on behalf of all of us. Well, thank you very much. And I and it could not happen if people weren't willing to come and share their stories. So 
I appreciate you and all of the other people that we worked with at Slock who have been willing to come forward and spend an hour with me to share their stories. It's been, it's been really, really remarkable. So that leads me to my next question. I, I actually have a lot of questions for you, but people that you haven't interviewed yet that are on your list, who's your top three that you're trying to get on here? Oh my goodness. My top three. I know. You can say as many as you um, Well, a creme de la creme would be Mitt, right? I have not. I, I tried to just go through his Senate website, but I never did get a response back from the senator, which I totally understand. It would be great to have Mitt on. He might just say, well, go read my book. Okay, you know, I have his book, uh, but uh, it would be nice to have him come and share his story. People that I worked with, I would enjoy having on. Uh, there are some who have said, well, I'd rather just listen and I really don't want to come and tell my story. And I totally respect that. So I'm not going to divulge their names. But a couple of people that I that I worked with that I haven't connected with uh, in, in some way. I had a couple of people that worked for me, Lisa King and David Hansen. Uh, I, I think it would be really nice to have them on. And then on the training side, uh, Carol Harris and Darcy Holder, who did the training, they were they were awesome. I would love to have them on. There, there are just so many people. It's hard to name the names. And I don't know if they were top three or in the mix, but you know, those are people that really just come to mind off the top of my head as you asked me that question. If you could interview one athlete that was a part of the Salt Lake Games, who would you be interested in having? You know, I would be interested in interviewing someone that didn't win anything and really had low expectations. I can't remember who it was, was talking about the, the Kazakhstan hockey team. Who was it that was talking about that? I don't remember. Maybe Brad, it was, in the piece, or was it Brad? Brad Eggert. Yeah, Brad Eggert talking about the Kazakh ho- the, the hockey team. I would like to talk to somebody like that who came in. They had no expectations, but they were just part of this fantastic movement. You know, what was that experience like for them? Because we hear we hear the experiences from the medalists. You know, these people get interviewed all the time on the television, and so we're kind of familiar with those. I'd like to talk to somebody that had no expectations, wasn't meant to win anything, didn't win anything, but still was able to come and have an Olympic or Paralympic experience. And that's another part of the answer to that question would be a Paralympian. I'd really like to talk to a Paralympian. It's been great to have so many people talk about the Paralympic Games and how amazing it was to work those games and amazing it was to watch the athletes. I think a Paralympian would be great. We just were talking about athletes that you might want to interview. And another question that you've asked in the past on some during some conversations is if you had a different job, if you would now that we've been listening to all these other stories, do you hear some jobs and go, ooh, that one I want. I want to go to my next games. And that's what I want my job to be. It's so interesting. When I hear these guests, you and your colleagues, when they come on and talk about their jobs, I think about every single one of them sounds so interesting. I wonder what it would be like to work in that position. So in my particular role, I I did not work on a venue. And that's actually one of the 
regrets I have. I had an opportunity to be a venue technology manager, but I was so concerned about the workforce systems and I was the, really the only person that knew anything about them that I felt like I really needed to spend my time supporting those systems. I didn't really have time to fill a venue technology manager role. And I wish that I would have taken that opportunity looking in hindsight. It would have been great to have that experience actually working on the venue full time rather than roving around and supporting everybody. But that's not to say that I would want to be the venue technology manager in a future organizing committee. Uh, <laughs> and when it comes to working for a potential future OCOG, my feeling is I've, I've worked in organizing committees. I don't know if I really want to go back to that again, to be quite honest, to working in an organizing committee as just a regular employee of an organizing committee working full time. But I would probably make an exception for the next games in Salt Lake. And if the games are held here in Salt Lake City again, then I would probably want to, not probably, I definitely would want to be the person that is in charge of information, knowledge, and learning, as it's now called. It used to be called OGKM in the IOC world, and now it's called, which is Olympic Games Knowledge Management, and now it's called Information, Knowledge, and Games Learning. It's a broader scope than just typical transfer of knowledge. That's the role that I consult in. That's the role that I would be interested in playing in a future OCOG, probably limited to Salt Lake. I don't know if I'd want to do it for anybody else. I'm really curious to know more about that particular job, that function. So if you could just expand a little bit on what that job delivers to people like me or other people listening that might go back to an organizing committee, like what does that job do for people listening? Uh, that's a really, really good question. So when we typically think of knowledge management, we typically think of the system that the documents are stored on and the process of transferring documents from one organizing committee to another. And the way that it's set up in the International Olympic Committee now, it, that's that's a small part of a very large picture of learning. And so all of the learning that goes on in an organizing committee, which is typically thought of as a people management function and probably rightly so and the ioc it falls under the purview of the ikl function all of the learning that is required for delivering the games planning and organizing the games falls under that umbrella there there might be other learning which is just kind of regular corporate stuff uh or soft skills or things like that that may fall outside the purview of that but the core learning that's that's undertaken to help learn about the games and plan and deliver those games that falls under this umbrella. So all of the functional areas, they, they are involved in this. They help coordinate the learning journeys of their, their team members. And we work together to kind of roadmap that out and then create a series of learning interventions for all of them so that they, they have an opportunity to learn what it takes to deliver a games. And, that in a nutshell is what the job is. And in my view, uh, storytelling, which is like this podcast, is a really, really simple and effective way to share knowledge. And so I would make storytelling a real center point of, of sharing knowledge, whether that's through person-to-person -person means, through workshops, or one-on-one -on -one coaching, mentoring opportunities, or through more asynchronous ways, like we're talking about with podcasts or, or recorded interviews and things of that nature. 
And then on top of that, uh, all of the observation and experience opportunities that are available are also coordinated by the IKL function. So, you know, going to the observer programs, which are now called games experience programs uh, at, at the games or or participating uh, in secondment opportunities with other organizing committees or uh, managing the observation opportunities for test events, you know, world championships, working with international federations. Uh, all of that is kind of included in that umbrella. That would be very, very interesting, I think. Definitely interesting because we know the games and the planning is finite, right? It's a finite start and ending. And so much of that information for a long time just went away if people left the the game's journey. So this is a really important way to keep a smart trajectory of getting better and better year over year. So thank you for that as well. Just one other quick thought on that. Uh, for a long, long time, I, th I thought of knowledge as documents and spreadsheets and things like this that are transferred from one organizing committee to another. But to me, the most effective knowledge management mechanism are relationships. And so whatever you can do to build relationships with people that have been through it, that should be done. And I really kind of feel like that is the primary, that's the primary objective of someone who's overseeing this area is to help facilitate and develop relationships with experts or or people that have done it before your predecessors or your colleagues in other areas because at the end of the day it works more effectively if you can pick up the phone or you can talk to somebody online who has been in your shoes rather than just sitting there and trying to find policies and procedures online that's pretty dry policies and procedures online versus one-on-one -on -one conversation. Yep. So this is sort of off topic, but I'm wondering, I'm curious about your perspective on what will happen with Tokyo, especially when it comes to, this is really new territory for, for the Olympics. Well, we know what's already happened, right? We know that uh, no international spectators are going to be allowed that the IOC is really cutting down on the team that will go over the spouses and family members, guests are no longer allowed. So that's a very drastic thing. And that's not just, that's not just changing the experience of the, the guests, but also the people that work there. There are, there are a lot of protocols for quarantining and working and, you know, you can only go from, your venue back to your hotel and you can't go to restaurants or grocery stores. So that makes it difficult. And then the accreditation has been quite tight. I know in the area of knowledge management, this has impacted the games experience program quite a bit. It's also impacted the IOC's data capture initiative where people don't have access to get into the venues to do the counting or take the pictures that they need. So it's, it's a challenge operationally in the back. We'll see what happens with spectators. I don't think we know uh, what the final numbers are going to be, if they're going to let 50% of domestic spectator or, or you know, 75% stadia capacity or what it's going to be. They're you know, still working those things out. But it's going to be challenging from getting credentialed to 
to going and getting on a plane to getting off the plane and getting to your accommodation and having to quarantine for a certain period of time. I mean, all of that is going to be really, really challenging, I think. I think you're you're spot on. And of course, we don't know yet because everything is still ebbing and flowing and changing. So next, I want to take a little trip. We're going to travel. We're going to travel over to Olympic Island. And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions that you've asked a few of our friends. If you were stranded on Olympic Island and you're a foodie, this is going to be hard for you. If you if you have to pick one meal, what would you what would you pick? All right. Well, I'm going to say it's my podcast so I can change my rules slightly if I want to. So I'm going to make a slight change to my rules. I'm going to. I'm going to choose a day on Olympic Island. So I'm going to choose one meal for each meal a day. So for breakfast, our Christmas tradition in our home for breakfast, my wife makes sourdough waffles. They are awesome. So I'm having sourdough waffles for breakfast with my bacon and eggs. That's kind of our go-to breakfast every Christmas. I love it. So that is my Christmas breakfast. For lunch, I lived in Mexico. I love Mexico I love Mexican food. Absolutely love Mexican food. So my lunch is Mexican food. I'm a street taco guy. So I'm having street tacos, tacos al pastor, and uh, probably some mole amarillo. So yellow mole, because I love yellow mole. The mole, several people have talked about red iguana, and red iguana has the best mole this side of Mexico that I have found. So I would be having their, their mole. And then for dinner, it has to be Thanksgiving. So... Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. That's my favorite meal. So it's going to be a nice Thanksgiving dinner. I'm going to have the turkey. I'm going to have the mashed potatoes. I'm going to have the stuffing. My wife makes an awesome stuffing. It's delicious. I can eat it for days. And I do eat it for days because we have a lot of leftovers. And so all of the regular fixings you would normally have with Thanksgiving dinner capped off with pumpkin pie and chocolate pie. My wife makes awesome pumpkin. My daughter too. She's, she's quite the baker. So the pumpkin pie and the chocolate pie would cap it off. So that's my cheat kind of three meals in one day. That's my response. Hope I don't get in trouble by people saying I'm cheating. That's a solid response. I think you're going to get applause for that. So as you are in your nap phase of after Thanksgiving dinner and you sit down to watch a movie, what movie would that be? You know, I've thought about this question a lot because I, I do like a lot of movies. And so I ultimately, I, I know it's going to sound silly, but I ultimately fell back on the movie that had the most impact on me when I was a kid. And that was Star Wars. I'll take the trilogy, the original trilogy, Star Wars. I was 10 years old. I was just turning 10. My birthday is the 21st of May. So it came out right around my birthday time. And that was my birthday present or one of them. I said, I want to go see Star Wars really bad. My parents were like, whatever, this is going to be awful. Took me, we stood in a huge line at the old centers theater in downtown Salt Lake City for anybody who lived there at the time. There were not a lot of theaters in Salt Lake at that time. And center theater was playing. And we stood in that big long line and we got tickets and sat on the very front row because we were, (laughs) we almost didn't get in. So here we are on the front row with our necks cocked way back and the credits roll or the screen, you know, roll happens. The story comes up. My mother is just like, this has got to be the dumbest thing I've ever seen. You know, this dumb story is coming up. And then the Tanda 4 ship comes followed by the Star Destroyer over the planet of Tatooine. And I was just awestruck. And so I will go with that movie because 
it may not be the best movie that's ever existed, but it was a movie that I just remember to this day, just had a huge impact on me when I was a kid and gave me all the feels. And so I want to feel that I want to feel good when I'm on this island. So I'm going to, I'm going to choose star Wars. That is a solid choice. You're going to have all the other people around you watching the movie with you, eating coconut. <laughs> okay. We're having Thanksgiving. <laughs> we having Thanksgiving dinner. That's right. So we have our food, we've watched our movie, and now it's time for your music. What album would you bring? Well, this, again, it's your rules. We could have a whole concert. Who's your, what band is coming and doing the concert on the island? Okay, well, here's another one I might I might get a little bit of derision for, but I'm a big progressive rock fan, and my favorite band growing up, and still to this day, was Rush. So I'm going Rush, and I'm going to go with a live album because they're so awesome in concert. And the one concert that I really love watching over and over again, because I have the DVD of it, is Rush in Rio. And it's so awesome because the people in Rio, I don't know if you, you know, any of our listeners, if they don't know the Brazilians, they take their concerts seriously. Like they go prepare, they learn the songs and in Russian Rio, they're singing all the songs or even singing the instrumental parts to YYZ. I mean, it's just really insane what the fans are doing. They're crazy. And so I'm going to go with uh, Russian Rio, uh, the live album, which has a lot of great songs on it. I'm also going to cheat, though. I'm going to throw a second one on there. Some of the most talented musicians on the planet uh, play in the band Dream Theater, but they have a they have a collaboration, or three of the artists have a collaboration with Tony Levin on bass called Liquid Tension Experiment, which is for progressive rock fans is totally mind blowing music. They're awesome, and they're coming out with an L album this year. But they did a concert in LA in 2008, which is amazing. So I would take the YouTube video of that concert as the album, as it doesn't exist as an album, and it's great. And they finish up with a progressive rock take on George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, which is mind blowingly awesome. And so, yeah, Russian Rio and Liquid Tension Experiment live in LA. 100% you're going to have to put those links in the bio of this podcast because I'm certain there are people listening that are going to want to check that out. But I want to check it out right now. Yeah, the other three progressive rock fans that, <laughs> that have listened to the podcast will probably put it on there. But but yeah, that's me. I'll, so that's my album. That's my movie. That's my meal. Well, I love that. Um, I do have another music question, and that is, what would your play-on song or walk-on song be? Yeah, so if if I were athletically inclined and I, <laughs> I was stepping up to the plate in the ballpark or whatever, what music would be playing? Well, I guess I'll get, be a little redundant here, and I'll put Rush Tom Sawyer. I know it's totally overplayed, but I love that song, and it psychs me up whenever I hear it. I love that. Can you imagine if every day when we walked onto the floor we were working on, if somebody played our play on song as we walked in? I have to say play on songs. I don't know if you've been to a baseball game in Japan, but they're awesome. And the play on songs for the players are great. And I remember going to a baseball game there and one person's theme song was the theme to Back to the Future. 
it had no words, but it was just the it was just the melody of Back to the Future. And I thought that's probably the most unusual play on song I've ever heard was the theme song to Back to the Future. Very creative. Very creative. Okay, so sorry, a little bit of a audio blip there. All right, so I'd like to kind of open up the floor to you to share some of your favorite Salt Lake memories. And, and you know, one thing I didn't ask is, how long were you there? When did you start working for the committee? Right, so I joined in, two. Uh, let's see, June of 2000. So I just bought a house, and the job change was, I think, maybe two or three weeks after we closed on our home. And so that was really, really great to, to be in our new place that had space for our growing family. That was a really great memory, just being able to get hired by Slock and not have to travel. One of the things that I really enjoyed was I enjoyed talking to the various functional areas and venue teams about the systems that we were using, particularly the scheduling system, which nobody really liked. But, uh, but it was nice because one of the nice things about working in the workforce area and working in the technology area is you do get exposed to a lot of different functional areas that are going to be using the systems. And so you get a little bit of familiarity with their business processes. And I really enjoyed that interaction and learning about the various functional areas and what they did and, and some of the concerns that they had about, well, how am I going to schedule this person or how are we going to manage the training for these groups of individuals and so on and so forth. So I really, really enjoyed that. Another, when it comes to, when it comes to stories themselves, sometimes I find great comfort in small, silly moments. And I mentioned Lisa King a little while ago. And I remember one time we were driving to, I can't remember if it was Park City or Soldier Hollow. We were going up there to do some trainings or something like that. And we came back and just had a I, I, I love to listen to music in my car and we came back and I had a, I think I had a cassette tape player at that time. Maybe I had a CD player at that time. I can't remember what I have CD. Maybe it was a CD player in the car and uh, we were listening to Radiohead, which is another one of my favorite bands. And uh, we were just remarking about how crazy it was the transformation they went from their first music on Pablo Honey and Creep to, and the bends to OK Computer. And then Kid A comes out and this is like, that's weird. <laughs> That's totally weird. And so I really, I really enjoyed that memory. It's really more about the small moments, nothing like humongously spectacular. It was just, it was just nice time being with people that mattered to me. One of the things that I've heard in your voice throughout these 100 episodes is your insatiable curiosity. And I'm sure that's part of the reason why you're so good at this. You're so curious about people and you must be an anthropologist in heart because you, you really love people and you love the science of people. Maybe, I don't know. I can barely say or spell anthropologist. That's a lot of syllables for someone like me. It's interesting because I don't necessarily consider myself a people person. I'm more introverted I have a degree in accounting. I started life out as an accountant, which is about as far away as you can get from what you would think is a people person. But you're right. I am very intellectually curious. And I find everybody that I speak with on this podcast and elsewhere just to be fascinating. It's just fascinating to me to learn a little bit about the experiences that people have gone through. 
that was one of the great things. I don't know what you think about this, but to me, that was one of the great things about working the Salt Lake 2002 games where there are so many people from so many different interesting backgrounds and countries and cultures and being able to interact with them and learn a little bit about them to me was really, really a lot of fun. You know, it was, it was great. My, my counterparts under Mark Young were Sophia Kaderi, who's of Indian ethnicity and super, super interesting. And Natalie Moldover, a Jamaican. And, you know, their, their cultures it were so interesting to me. I just, I really, really fell in love with the people at Slock and the diversity that we had there. Even though, you know, Salt Lake, and we've talked about this on podcasts most, most recently with, with Alan Brooks, you know, Salt Lake being a rather homogenous place to live, or at least it was more so back then, but then just having this huge melting pot of people in the organized community to me was totally fascinating. Yeah, I think it's one of the things all of us really loved that the buffet of cultures that came together. And, and again, your podcast is really sprinkling in all of that. And it's, it's great. Do you, do you have anything that you haven't shared that we have, I haven't asked you or that we haven't covered off? Uh, yeah, I got, I got a lot of, <laughs> I'm sure I've got a lot of things and I don't want to bore everybody to tears because we've gone on a long time. One of the really fun things about my job, I felt at Slock was help helping people find some order out, in, out of the chaos. And in HR, what that meant was from a systems perspective, helping to design business processes. And so that gave me a lot of opportunity to get on a whiteboard and draw a lot of boxes and squares and diamonds and lines and things. And I really felt like that, that made a difference uh, when we were rolling out the, the systems for the games, because we felt like, all right, we've got the critical, we understand the business process here a little bit better. And, and we know what requirements are being met. And we know where the gaps are. Aside from that, uh, just a couple of other just a couple of other tidbits. One, I, uh, I, I apologize to Mary Dye if I'm throwing her under the bus, but she, to me, had the most hilarious reply all <laughs> email. I, there was an email that went out to everybody, and I can't even remember the subject of the email. And then, you know, it goes out to 2,000 people, and Mary replies all, huh? It just that's the that's the response. So the response that goes out to two thousand people is just a question, huh? <laughs> that's it. So I have to give props to Mary. She was a lot of fun, but I love that little story. It it taught me a great lesson about reply <laughs> all. And I and I think another one, uh, another one I I wouldn't mind sharing was early on when we were scoping out systems. I just come on and I'd only been there for maybe a few weeks, maybe a month, and. We already had some of the systems in place, but there were some others that we were still looking at. I had a meeting with Richard Bessemer and Mike Loind. Richard Bessemer and Mike Loind, for those who don't know, they at that time, they were partners in CSC or Contemporary International for the international part. And they were the guys really running event services for the Salt Lake 2002 games. It was contracted out to their firm. And they had developed a system called DPAT in Sydney. 
And when I was talking to them about some market assessment I was doing for the for systems that we were interested in, they expressed an interest in co-developing a solution based on the DPAT solution that they built uh, in Sydney. And I remember rejecting that notion because I was risk averse, saying, well, I have a limited budget. I can't really risk it on a tool that's not yet developed. I need I need something that's been proven. Uh, thankfully, they didn't they didn't hate me forever for rejecting that. And in fact, they hired me after Salt Lake was over to help them in Athens. But there, there are times when I look back and say, you know what? I wish I would have grabbed that opportunity to build a system that was really fit for purpose because the systems that we used, they were fine, but they were built for businesses that were not Olympic games. They were built for other things. And so we had a difficult time trying to fit square pegs into round holes on many occasions. And there's sometimes I look back on that and say, you know what, maybe that would have been a good opportunity to sit with Mike who I think is a brilliant guy and Richard as well and say, all right, what can we really build here? That would be fantastic for the games. So, you know, those are a couple of memories that I haven't shared with people, but they're, they just come to top of mind as we're having this conversation now. As, as oftentimes that that's what happens when you reminisce, it pops up and you're like, I haven't thought about that for a while. Well, we're kind of closing out the conversation, but, Absolutely. Before we do, we need to cover off your goosebump moment. And that's been a highlight for so many people to hear other people's goosebump moments, because I think it helps us all remember things. So I'd love to hear what yours was. Well, I kind of gave my goosebump moment away on the very first episode when I was talking with Darren. (laughs) And uh, but but I'll mention a couple of others. So the goosebump moment that I mentioned then, which still to me, gives me chills this day is seeing those humongous Olympic rings on the side of the mountain above the university of Utah. Whenever I was driving into the headquarters or going wherever, and it's like five o'clock in the morning or something. And I see those rings illuminated on the side of the mountain. It always gave me chills to this day. When I think the memory is so vivid in my mind, I can just, I can picture those rings just like it was yesterday. That's very cliche to say, but it's absolutely true. I can see those rings. I can see myself driving my little 2000 Nissan Sentra <laughs> on a winter day, uh, looking over and seeing those, seeing those mountains and seeing that, that beautiful display of rings there. Another one for me was the closing ceremony. I mean, the opening ceremony was definitely, that was awesome as well. The closing ceremony was just such a huge party. It was so much fun. I, I so enjoyed it. But at the same time, it was a bit melancholy because I knew the games were coming to an end. So that was definitely a goosebump moment. Many people have talked about Metals Plaza. I loved Metals Plaza. It was so fun. I remember going there, seeing Bare Naked Ladies with so many of our friends and seeing the lead singer in his uh, Canadian speed skating uniform. Uh, So much fun, the Metals Plaza. What a great concept. And so wonderfully executed and so many amazing musical acts that performed at the at the Meadows Plaza. Aside from that, though, really the goosebump moment for me still are the relationships that were forged then. Many of those still last today. You know, it's interesting. I look at I look back on it and every one of them, maybe it's the quote unquote cliched rose colored glasses. But for me, every relationship was a good one. There isn't anybody that I worked with on the organizing committee that I despised or hated or anything like that. 
I felt like I got along with everybody there. The teamwork was awesome. And just thinking back to the camaraderie that we all had working those games, to me, it was very special. So I'll lump that in with a goosebump moment too. So there you go. I gave like four different goosebump moments, but really what I said to Darren at the beginning was truly, it It was seeing those rings on the mountainside. They were absolutely spectacular. So if people want to reach out to you for any reason, business opportunities to talk about this podcast, what is the easiest and best way for them to reach out to you? Well, you can find me on LinkedIn, Christian Napier there, or you can email me cnapier at gp4.com. That's gpfour.com. And I'm or you can, you know, the former Slock staff Facebook group. I'm on Facebook as well. Would absolutely love to hear from anyone and particularly those who have not yet been on the podcast who worked Salt Lake 2002, whether you were a staff contractor or a volunteer, uh, please let me know. Let's connect and let's uh, get your story added to this crazy tapestry of memories we've created over the last year. That is a perfect way to sum this up. Thank you, Christian. You've been just wonderful to talk to you and kind of pull back a little bit of the layers around who you are since we hear you so much as our host and cruise director through these delightful podcasts. And for those of you listening, this is the 100th episode. So very appropriate that it is Christian. Please do check in next week when we have 101 episodes and a brand new guest as well. So thanks everybody for listening until next week. Cheers. Amy, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you doing this. You're welcome.